You're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast about business unusual. I'm Peter Tufano, the Dean of Said Business School at the University of Oxford. Here at Oxford, we don't just teach people about business or economics. We teach people how to think, how to solve problems, how to adapt to an ever-changing world. And we need that new thinking now more than ever. In this series, we're sharing the research and analysis from our global network of academics and leaders on the front lines of business. Please check out our library of past episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 5, The Great Decoupling, The Future of Relations Between China and the West. What will be the new normal for the global economy after the pandemic ends? While the world has been battling the health, social, and economic consequences of COVID-19, one of the foundational planks of the global economy, China's relationship with the West, has continued to shift. Over the course of four years, the Trump administration has portrayed China as an economic and national security threat to the United States, dramatically increased tariffs on Chinese goods, and blocked targeted Chinese firms from using American components and technologies. Severe pressure was placed on American allies to do the same. Global technology companies have been stuck in the crossfire. Chinese firms faced difficulties accessing markets and sourcing key components. American firms were not able to sell to some of their most important customers, and European firms faced great uncertainty over how volatile markets would evolve. The once unthinkable prospect of unwinding tightly integrated global value chains and decoupling the economies of the United States and China has become a possibility that cannot be ignored. So in this episode, we want to understand why Western policy towards China and China's policy towards the West have shifted so dramatically in recent years and discuss how it may evolve in the future. We've brought together an exceptional panel to discuss the motivations driving the globalization of Chinese technology firms, the motivations driving the response of Western countries, and possible paths forward. This event is chaired by Eric Toon, Associate Professor of Chinese Business Studies here at Said Business School. I'm going to hand you over to Eric now to introduce the panel. Hello, and welcome to today's Leadership in Extraordinary Times event from Oxford University's Said Business School. Wherever in the world you are, thank you for joining us. Today's subject focuses on perhaps the most pivotal economic relationship over the next decade, that between China and the West. Our title today hints at the bumps in the road ahead. Are we really looking at the great decoupling? I'm delighted to be joined by a truly international panel perfectly placed to help us answer that question. In Berlin, we have Rebecca Arkasadi at the Mercator Institute for Chinese Studies. In Dusseldorf, we have Stefan Scheuer, the technology team lead for the newspaper Handelsblatt. In New York, we have Dr. Adam Siegel uh, at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, we have uh, Xu Dong Gao at the School of Economics and Management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. And joining me to help run the proceedings is my colleague, Dr. Mark Tseppen, uh, the lecturer in international business at Oxford Said as well. So to kick things off, let me just give a little bit of background. Given the extent of the turmoil and the change that we've all lived through during the last year, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the global economy is in the process of being transformed by forces that are unrelated to the global pandemic. Five years ago, we lived in a world in which the dominant narrative was one of technological globalism, unfettered global supply chains, and rapidly increasing global integration. 
Chinese President Xi Jinping, speaking at Davos four years ago, said that integration into the global economy is a historical trend, asserting that any attempt to cut off the flow of capital, technologies, products, industries, and people between economies runs counter to the historical trend. This may have been the trend, but it's become clear that trends can change. We now live in a world of tariffs, entity list, tit-for-tat accusations, and the decoupling of supply chains in ways that seemed unimaginable not so long ago. So the first question that I would like to pose to our panel is how did we get here? As might be expected, there are a wide range of opinions on this. And to start off our conversation, we're gonna to go to each part of the globe uh, from our panelists and try to understand the dominant perspective from their particular region. So I'd like to start off with, with Adam in, in New York. Uh, it's become clear that a hardening in views towards China was not purely a Trump phenomena, but rather enjoys broad bipartisan support in the, in the United States. Why is this? Why this shift? Uh, thanks very much, Eric. And I, I think you're exactly right. It's not simply Trump. And in fact, you could start seeing some strains of it at the end of the Obama administration. Uh, I would say uh, three things kind of came to, together. Uh, first, as you said, was an increasing kind of skepticism about the benefits of the globalization of science and technology and supply chains in particular, uh, an increasing focus on the vulnerabilities that that, that created. And the United States became uh, both concerned about the vulnerabilities it created for U.S. security and the benefits that would flow to China. Um, so, of course, the U.S. benefited immensely from uh, U.S. The technology being in the stack uh, throughout the world. Uh, Snowden revelations disclosed how the U.S. took advantage of that for intelligence gains, uh, and they became worried that China would uh, be able to have some of those same advantages and some of those same intelligence gains. Uh, second, uh, became an increasing focus on um, the role that civilian technology plays uh, in the military sphere. So um, the U.S. has become increasingly reliant on private sector players, uh, to produce innovation for the Defense Department and the Pentagon. Uh, most technology um, is now dual use, if not omni-use, and this seems especially clear in, in realms like uh, artificial intelligence uh, and quantum. Uh, and then third, as the Chinese government and the party uh, increasingly exerts influence over the private sector and the tech sector in particular, U.S. policymakers basically uh, argued that you could not have any interaction with the tech sector in China that did not uh, mean that the Communist Party had access to the data or could influence those technologies. Uh, and so the technology competition became more than um, just over competitiveness and national security. Uh, it also became ideological. Okay, uh, thank you. So so what we see is a focus on the, there's always been a balance of competition and cooperation, but it's much more focused on the competition and the national security implications. Uh, Xu Dong, in Beijing, do you, do you see a similar progression over the last 10 years on focusing on the competitive elements of the relationship? Thank you, Eric, and thank you, you know, everyone. Actually, in China, what my observation is uh, uh, not in the past 10 years, but just uh, two, three years, uh, especially from, you know, 2018. Uh, so the people in China believe uh, the U.S. government created a lot of you know, challenges, a lot of difficulties uh, for Chinese companies. First, like ZTE and then uh, Huawei arguing, you know, uh, this is related related to you know, national security. Uh, but in China, I think, you know, uh, the 
the, the mainstream understanding is this is nothing, there is nothing related to national security. Probably this is just about, you know, uh, the two countries' competition uh, in economy and in technology, and which I think, you know, China, so many people just don't understand. Because uh, for Chinese people, it's, it's natural. So today, uh, number one, uh, you know, U.S. is number one. And, uh, you know, if you look at it historically, U.K. is number one. And measured by different, you know, metrics, uh, probably, you know, Germany, uh, Japan, they were also number one. Uh, they, are, they are still number one in some areas. And uh, it's uh, for Chinese people, uh, I think people believe uh, it's also okay uh, for China to be number one in some areas. So mm -hmm. I think you know, that uh, the policy changes in the past two, three years really created uh, a lot of you know, misunderstanding, confusions. So it's a lot of things. Okay, well, we'll, we'll come back to that in, in a moment, but we'll, we have a sort of a, uh, an American perspective, a, a, a Chinese perspective. Europe sometimes feels as if it's stuck in the in the middle here. Uh, Rebecca, what's the view from from Brussels and the, the the EU perspective on this? Thank you, Eric. Very excited and honored to join uh, to join this fantastic panel today. Thanks for for the invite. Um, so when it comes to the EU, um, the buzzword right now relate to digital sovereignty, strategic autonomy. There's a lot of talk about how. Europe should de develop its own uh, core technologies. And that's a lot of that is a response to actually the intensifying conflict between the US and China over technology, because mm -hmm. the, the fear or the idea was that the EU would be stuck in the middle and would become dependent on both the US and China for, for critical technologies. So becoming a bit of the battleground rather than a competitor in the, in the geopolitics of technology. Uh, when it comes to, I think, European views of the US-China um, confrontation, I think there is a sense in Brussels that the current decoupling trend that we're seeing is a bit of Washington's making. So the idea being that you know, the Trump administration sort of escalated um, the campaign against Chinese technology companies. The 5G debate was very much uh, a wake-up call in Europe about the security aspects, the security risks um, that can come with, uh, with technology, especially from certain providers. But I think my sense is that uh, in Europe, uh, this is seen as something the U.S. kind of escalated. Another issue is the Export Control Reform Act, ECRA, that was also something that found Europe a bit unprepared and in a difficult position because the idea was that the U.S. was asking allies to restrict exports of um, emerging and foundational technologies to China. Um, and that's something that Europe was, uh, was frankly unprepared to do. So to my mind, the, the dominant perception in, in Europe, despite some common concerns across the Atlantic, is that the coupling is being driven more by the U.S. than by China. Okay, thank you. And Stefan, would Germany largely be in line with that thinking, or does Germany sometimes diverge from what might be the dominant EU perspective on this? Does Germany have sort of, can we talk about a distinct German perspective on these, on these issues? 
thank you, Eric. I think the specific situation in Germany is that the economic dependencies on what's going on in China are huge. So um, bear in mind that during the corona pandemic, um, the car industry, which is very, very strong in Germany, was hit very hard. But that overall, the economy or those companies performed quite well because they were able to sell so many cars back in China. So I do think that Germany wants to avoid a situation in which um, the, the government would have to pick sides. Although there is a lot of concern regarding uh, uh, 5G mobile networks, as a lot of companies are focusing on the digitalization of their production facilities, and 5G is one tool to achieve that. But there is a lot of concern that 5G might actually increase vulnerabilities of companies, so might actually make industrial espionage possible. So there are a lot of companies that are concerned using um, uh, Chinese-made telecommunication equipment. So the entire debate about Huawei was very much driven by the fear um, of losing, for example, uh, company secrets. Thank you. So one of the, the key elements that I think we have to dig a little deeper into is Chinese objectives. Uh, that we see a widely varying perspective on what, what Chinese objectives are, that where Adam started us off, it's very much focused on sort of national security implications. And Xu Dong was emphasizing the fact that, well, these are normal sort of economic practices. And we have a, a, a change in the, in the balance of economic power, and there's going to be rising, uh, there's going to be Chinese firms which are going to be globalizing and going out into other countries. With the Chinese objectives, one possibility is that there's been a lot of misperception and misunderstanding, and we're stumbling into a, into a crisis. Another possibility is that the, the threats and the national security implications are real, uh, and fundamental shifts in policy are, are required. So I'd like to sort of understand what the different perspectives on this are, and Stefan, you've published a book called The, the Master Plan, China's Path to High-Tech World Domination, uh, which just yesterday, uh, a revised version uh, came out. What is the, the master plan that you're, that you're referring to, and should the West be concerned by this? Well, um, first and foremost, China wants to catch up. So there are a lot of industries in which um, China is relying on uh, importing products that are being made in North America and Europe or in other parts of the world. So the first and foremost idea is that China should be on the forefront of technological innovation. And um, the government in Beijing has been very successful in designing um, a scheme in which companies could actually benefit from the rise in China while they were forced to share some of their um, company secrets. Uh, for example, um, cooperate with domestic companies. And this scheme is now leading to Chinese companies actually overtaking the former partners they had with companies um, in Europe or in the US. And we're right in the middle where on the one hand, we have government policies facilitating this catch-up period. And where at the other hand, we do have domestic Chinese companies that actually invested a lot in research and development and actually have come up with leading technology. So the master plan would actually be to succeed in coming at a place where it is actually Chinese-made um, technology that by the design is capable to conquer foreign markets. And I think China is in some areas already, 
already very far ahead. Um, we talked about the 5G mobile networks. Huawei has spent a lot on research and development over a long period of time and is spending way more money than, for example, Ericsson and Nokia uh, do as European competitors. So they have a lot of very well-established 5G technology. There are a lot of other areas where China is still lagging behind, and we are right in the middle of rebalancing this situation at the moment. Okay. But catching up is a very, it, it's what all developing countries want to do, uh, correct? And this is sort of the, the natural goal of, of, of development. Uh, Rebecca, would you would you agree with that? that that's sort of the you've done a lot of work in terms of uh, digitalization and China's push for industrial digitalization. Is there nothing to be concerned about other than the economic challenge that this is that this creates? Thanks, Eric. So I was just reading the draft of the 14th five-year plan uh, over the weekend. I was just thinking that there's a lot of continuity when it comes to what China has been trying to do for for a few years you know innovation driven development as the really the core of china's development trajectory is something that's been that's been in the making for, for a few years president xi jinping announced the strategy in 2016. i think there's a difference between uh, what the ccp has been doing under xi jinping's leadership compared to the past in the sense that china maybe doesn't just want to catch up, but it also wants to dominate in a number of key technologies like AI, and those plans are pretty clear. However, I do agree that, you know, the fundamental driver there is still to catch up, is still to, I think, also protect China's national security, because the idea is that only if China strengthens indigenous innovation can it make sure it's not vulnerable to what it perceives as Western dominance of technology supply chains. That's been a constant theme and a, a strategic priority for the Chinese Communist Party for decades, making sure China is not dependent on the West. I think the difference now is that with all the restrictions that um, the United States have imposed on Chinese technology, we've seen this Sputnik moment and we've seen Chinese technology self-reliance plans being turbocharged as a result uh, because China was already selectively engaging in globalization. It was already questioning, I think, inter interdependence and the benefits of that, but now it feels even more vulnerable and that's why it's doubling down on, on self-reliance for key and core technologies. Okay, so it's it's difficult to separate out sort of the economic implications of wanting to dominate a particular sector and the and the national security uh, implications. I'd like to ask Xu Dong that a lot of this might also be about perception in the sense that one of the fundamental tenets of a U.S. engagement policy with China was that China was evolving and over the long run would become more you know, like us, meaning sort of a Western, a Western uh, country. And one change that observers have noted is that there's much more of a, a confidence in the Chinese system today, that there's a willingness to say that this is our, our system, we're sticking with it, it's providing us with the economic benefits that we require, and the response to COVID-19 is, uh, is a good example to this, uh, that the sort of the response over the last 12 months, uh, the way that they've been able to, uh, to deal with the virus, but that this difference in the way that China is portrayed in the world might be leading to some of this 
change in in attitude in in other countries. Um, do you think there's anything to this this observation in terms in terms of whether there's been a, a growing confidence and that this has caused caused problems? Uh, Eric, I think this is a very challenging and very big question. Let, let, let me see a few points. Uh, one is, you know, there's definitely a lot of uh, similarities uh, between China and the U.S. and other countries. Uh, for example, you know, uh, compared with 40 years ago, uh, China now, we really believe uh, the economy is a market-driven economy. So in order to survive, a company uh, has to develop your core competencies. You have to provide good services, good products. So I think you know, here, uh, I, do see, I do not see a lot of differences between China and the US. Mm. Of course, you, you correctly mentioned, you know, there, there are also a lot of differences. For example, how you know, we deal with the pandemic. In China, actually, as President Xi Jinping uh, pointed out uh, recently, actually many times, but recently he uh, emphasized because now we are having the two, the so-called two conferences. During the pandemic, the state-owned hospitals uh, and also the People's Liberation Army, they played a dominant role uh, in dealing with you know, the challenge. In China, I think you know, most people believe uh, the U.S., the Trump administration did not do a good job. So here we see the differences uh, in our belief, our system, and our action. Philosophically, I think you know, your question is really, really important. In the long run, I really believe, I think not I believe, I think you know, we as human beings, as scholars, we believe in evolution. Uh, we believe in change. Uh, we believe in you know reform. So every country, every society, even every person, we have to do something you know differently tomorrow compared with today. So I think this is my my fundamental uh, observation. Uh, I, I think in many people you know share my understanding. Not only me, but uh, the Chinese society here. I think you know we see similarities, but also differences. So the challenge is, you know, how to manage uh, the challenge and to avoid uh, crisis. Another way of saying that China has more confidence today and that the world has to get used to that. Mm -hmm. the, the flip side is that America has to get used to the fact that it no longer plays the dominant role uh, in, the, in the world today. And that wasn't the normal state of being. And America's place going forward is going to be different. Mm -hmm. A recent report by an informal committee of, of technology executives and policy experts, included people like the Google C former CEO, Eric Schmidt, um, talked about how competition between the US and China is asymmetric. China plays by a different set of rules that allows it to benefit from corporate espionage, illiberal liberal surveillance, and a blurry line between its public and private uh, sector. Adam, would, would you agree with this, this conclusion? Uh, Eric, I, I definitely <laughs> do not agree. Uh, I think, you know, so much bias. For example, on the one hand, I think, you know, including you, including me, I think many of our colleagues in China, so many economists, on the one hand, we criticize the state-owned enterprises. 
Uh, we argue, you know, they are not innovative. They are low efficient. But at the same time, we say, oh, the blurring in China of private ownership and public you know, ownership is uh, making the, the whole economy, the whole society more efficient, more you know, uh, innovative. I think you know, this kind of uh, understanding need to be deepened. Asymmetry exists anywhere, any country. I'm sorry to say that because you know, as a scholar, uh, I should be more uh, modest, but uh, <laughs> in order to point out, you know, the, the, the bias. Uh, I, don't, I, don't think the, I don't think the report says that the blurring creates efficiency in the Chinese economy. I think what the report is saying and what the argument has been is that U.S. policy and international institutions, uh, trade institutions mm -hmm. are built on an assumption that you can fundamentally distinguish between a public actor and a private actor. Uh, and you mm -hmm. build rules around that. Uh, and in China, the blurring of that has made it difficult for those policies and organizations to respond. Yeah. The other the other charges, you know, uh, as we mentioned when we discussed Stefan's book, right, the technology transfer as a requirement for access to the Chinese market, uh, cyber espionage, other types of efforts to uh, gain technology on non-market points there. Uh, so I think that, you know, the issue looking at China is, is that there, those activities occur, but there's also a huge amount that occurs because China has invested, you know, double digits in R&D uh, over the last three decades. Uh, and Chinese firms, you know, have become incredibly competitive in a number of sectors, given the demands of the Chinese market uh, in fintech and other places like that. So there are, there is both kind of a market competition going on and these asymmetric tools that are being used that make it very hard to, to develop policy tools to respond. But Adam, if I could just um, push back a, a little bit that in, Adam has a, a great book uh, called uh, the, the Hacked World Order, uh, How Nations Fight, Trade, Maneuver and Manipulate in the, in the Digital Age. And one of the key points that you, that you make in there is that all of this stuff is things that everybody does, right? In terms of taking advantage of these digital technologies and that the, the U.S. was probably pioneered many of these techniques. So again, maybe it's just China becoming sort of a normal great power. Yeah, and I think, look, you can see that uh, partly in how the U.S. is struggling to respond to the hacks we're talking about in, in the U.S. right now, the hack of the Microsoft server exchanges, and then, and then before that, the SolarWinds uh, hacks, that those seem to be political military espionage in the U.S., you know, conducts those types of attacks and conducts probably very similar types of attacks, uh, undermining supply chains and, and other things. Uh, the, the distinction the U.S. Is, has tried to make and, you know, uh, at one point came to an agreement with China when uh, President Obama and President Xi uh, signed an agreement in, uh, in 2015 saying that you could not commit cyber espionage for industrial espionage for competitiveness reasons. Now, you can you know, question um, about if the U.S. has followed that completely in, in line with the way it says. You know, again, the Soda revelations show that the U.S. targeted Petrobras and EU negotiators and other things. But the U.S. has always argued that uh, it did those things out of national uh, economic and security interests, not to help specific firms. So there is a distinction the U.S. has, has tried to make. I, I can see why people outside of the U.S. might not believe that the NSA and the CIA hold up to it. But that is, a, I think, a normative distinction the U.S. has tried to make about how you operate in this space. 
Okay. Uh, Eric, thank you. if I can, you know, respond to, uh, you know, Adam, uh, I will find a time to read your book. Unfortunately, I haven't. So I think two uh, examples let me cite. One is, you know, the, about the boundary between the private sector and the public sector. Uh, I think in China, you know, people have different understandings. Chinese people, many, you know, scholars believe in the U.S. the boundary is not clear. For example, you know, the, the public sector spend a lot of money in supporting research and development, not only in universities, in research institutes, but also in industries. In China, actually, the government tried and is trying, continue to do that, but actually the amount of money is very small. Uh, if you look at the data, most of the money in China, research money, research and development come from companies. Another point actually is uh, there's a strong argument that Chinese government you know, forced US companies to transfer technology. I do not want to comment on the policy, but I want to comment on the results. The results is not good. You know, think about the automobile industry. GM General Motors and Ford Motor Corporation, you know, uh, including uh, European companies like Audi and uh, uh, Toyota from Japan. Even today, after you know, almost 40 years, the technology transfer is very limited. Chinese companies are still far behind the industry leaders. So in that sense, I think you know, we need to study uh, the nature and the effectiveness of technology transfer. My understanding, my research tells me that indigenous capability is a precondition and the most important factor uh, for Chinese local governments, uh, the local companies' capability development. You're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times with me, Peter Tufano. In this episode, we're looking at the Great Decoupling the future of relations between China and the West. We're in the company of top China analysts from around the globe, Professor Xu Dong Gao in Beijing, Rebecca Arcasati in Berlin, Stefan Scheuer in Dusseldorf, Dr. Adam Siegel in New York, and Dr. Mark Zeppin in Oxford. Chairing the discussion is Dr. Eric Toon here at Site Business School. The panel has been discussing the different views when it comes to Chinese objectives. But what have been the impacts of China's policies? Are they working? We're going to hear now from Dr. Mark Zeppin, a lecturer in international business here at Oxford Said, who has done a lot of work on the aircraft sector in China. Does he think that these policies have been effective? I think the picture is a, a very mixed one. Um, there, there are industries in which technology transfer clearly has been successful, a lot of it in microelectronics, for example, a lot of it in machine tools. There are other industries, and this goes back to what you don't just mentioned a couple couple minutes ago. There's other sectors in which technology transfer has been significantly less successful. Um, at, at the risk of oversimplifying, I would suggest that very often technological transfer is not very successful in industries in which there's a danger of distraction by big shiny objects. Commercial aircraft manufacturing. I think that that is a case in point. Um, the big shiny object, of course, being the aircraft as a whole, you know, the thing that start, takes off, flies in the sky, that we can see. However, um, in, in the case of commercial aircraft uh, design and manufacturing, the underlying constituent parts like, you know, avionics, like aircraft engines, like uh, landing gear, like auxiliary components, 
um, that, that those are actually being the more technologically intensive ones. And, and you see this dichotomy that at the level of the entire assembly, uh, the aircraft as a whole, it looks as though China has done relatively well absorbing knowledge from companies like Airbus, like, um, like Boeing, like Embraer. However, when you do a, a bit of a deeper dive into, again, constituent sub-assemblies, um, there's uh, a much more mixed record, and in perhaps the most critical technology in aircraft manufacturing, namely uh, modern generation and jet engines, China has been relatively unsuccessful at trying to absorb technology through a number of different mechanisms uh, described both by, by, by Xu Dong in terms of indigenous capability building and those described by Adam in terms of um, you know, asymmetric uh, creative approaches. And I think if you go to other industries like semiconductors, for example, and we're seeing this unfolding right now, you know, I have a similar story that at the level of the big shiny object, as a certain success story, whereas at the, um, at the you know, less sexy um, level of underlying components like, uh, like logic chips themselves, um, the, the record is a lot more mixed. So to sum this up, I think across the board, you see a lot of attempt to gain technological traction by a broad range of different mechanisms, some of those market conforming, some of those being uh, quite asymmetric. Um, the outcome is, is, is very much mixed across different industries and different types of technologies. And Stefan and Rebecca, I'm interested in your view as, as well that this is a matter of dispute, uh, but one observation of China over the last 15 years is that industrial policies have become more prominent. Uh, and the most famous of these would be Made in China 2025. And that there's more of a, of a top-down top down effort. Do you think that this has led to positive results in terms of innovation and economic outcomes? Um, or alternatively, is this not going to be successful and it's really going in the, in the wrong direction? Uh, for the for the for the Chinese economy, Stefan, you were a, a correspondent covering these issues for for many years in in China. What's your what's your perspective on this? Well, I do think that on the one hand, we had areas in which China used industrial policy to, for example, keep international competitors out of a market. We saw that especially in the digital industries, um, where, for example, Google had difficulties to get a foot on the ground and then eventually left. Uh, Facebook wasn't allowed in. Twitter wasn't allowed in. Another, uh, a lot of US tech companies had problems to actually enter the market. So there was room being created for Chinese companies to fill this area and they could flourish because there were not many already well-established international competitors. This was quite successful, we have to say, from today's perspective. During my time in China, there were a lot of industrial policies concentrating on specific areas. Uh, so we looked, for example, at roboter production. So production of industrial robots to um, actually streamline um, productions in facilities and in, in factories, etc. And what we saw is Beijing put out a policy and basically encouraged different provinces to support local companies producing those robots. And what actually resulted is different provinces actually started a, a competition to give even more subsidies to um, local companies producing those robots. And the result was there was an overcapacity. Nobody needed that robots, but because every province was competing with the other one, um, they spent out huge amounts of money and it didn't really lead to, to a good area um, in the end. So I think you always have to be very specific in what areas you're looking at. If the government is just coming in, giving out subsidies in many areas that's not that successful, 
because it leads to oversupply. But there are certain areas where um, especially Chinese tech companies have been very successful. Okay. Uh, and, and Rebecca? Yes, I wanted to first add maybe one thought about the point about all countries sort of doing the same and following similar rules. Uh, and I very much agree with what Adam mentioned earlier about the concerns about technology transfer from abroad, you know, economic espionage, IP theft. Those concerns are very much present here in Europe as well. And I want to emphasize that because the Made in China 2025 industrial policy plan, coupled with a wave of Chinese acquisitions of European technology, especially in 2015 and 16, many of them backed by state capital, actually led to, uh, you know, they were a wake-up call in Europe because I think the idea, the perception there was that China was was following a techno-nationalist approach and that that was distorting the playing field. It was creating advantages for, for Chinese companies, considering that a lot of strategic sectors remain close to European companies in China. Meanwhile, European business continue to lament the issue of forced technology transfer in China. That's something that, that still comes up a lot when you talk about technology policies in China with European um, executives uh, on the ground. So I think there are different rules there and that the European side is also concerned about um, what is perceived as a, as a distortive way of, uh, of, of doing technology and, and innovation policy. When it comes to the success of, uh, of state capitalism, if you will, I think it's been really successful in certain sectors. And Stefan mentioned robotics. Another one is electric vehicles, also because of the system's capability to absorb um, massive misallocation of resources. That's that's definitely something that plays to China's advantage. But I think we also need to realize that a lot of the innovation that happens in China happens in the private sector. You know, internet companies have been tremendously successful at innovating business models. Uh, think about the sharing economy or fintech, an area that the state now wants to control a bit more. Uh, but a lot of that innovation, also a lot of AI innovation happens in the private sector. And I think the role of the state is important, but we shouldn't also overestimate that. Just one final thought is that a core weakness of China's innovation system remains basic research. That's very prominent in the 14th five-year plan because they know that that's an area where they still need to, to overcome uh, some of the weaknesses there. And I think that's the area where state control over academia and over the private sector, something that Adam mentioned earlier, is going to be a big problem going forward. There's a lot of different perspectives on these on these issues, and there's a lot of complexities, and we have to figure out a way forward. And I'd like to think about this a little bit, both from the firm perspective and from the perspective of, of nation states. And uh, before I launch into this, I want to urge the audience, uh, please do uh, send in your questions. Uh, keep them short uh, if, you, if you can. Uh, that, that helps us. And we will get to them now. And I'd like to start off with one of the questions, actually, from, from James Luden, uh, the China Forums Director at IMA Asia. And he asked, he says that there's been a lot of talk and activity in boardrooms of EU-US headquartered multinational companies to implement a China for China strategy in the areas of financing, innovation, talent, and supply chains. 
how does recoupling work in the midst of, of decoupling? Um, so essentially, how do multinational firms, how are they going to deal with the challenges that are created by these two systems that are being are, are being created? What should be the, the strategy um, in the in the boardrooms for these for these headquarters? And the one perspective might be in terms of, of corporate governance. Any any perspectives on on this? If I may, uh, maybe I can start. Um, I think companies are struggling a lot with the difficulty. Um, one, uh, one situation that shows how difficult it is for a lot of companies to come up with a clear strategy is how Volkswagen, uh, one of the largest um, car manufacturers in the world, how this company is really strug struggling to come up with an idea of how to deal with the issue. So uh, quite a lot of you might have seen um, a BBC inter a, a reporter uh, asking um, Herbert Dies, the CEO of Volkswagen, about what's going on in Xinjiang. And he basically claimed that he didn't know about it, which is just showing how incapable VW is of coming up with a coherent strategy. In the past, the idea was to have a lot of um, German managers going to China to basically run the business and did, didn't leave anywhere um, in the long run. So they actually increased the importance of local managers but they haven't really come up with the idea of how they want to proceed this whole thing in the long run. Uh, they do want to divert, divert the risks they're having as they're relying a lot on uh, the revenue um, in China, but they're actually not getting away. Actually with Corona, the dependencies on the Chinese market have actually been growing. So um, I think it's actually, the situation is just getting more difficult than it was in the past. Anybody else want to jump in there? Mark, you've worked, thought a lot about sort of the, the decoupling strategies and recoupling strategies for, from, a, from a corporate perspective. Quite frankly, I think um, approximately since the end of the Cold War, most glo uh, Fortune Global 500 or other globally active companies have had the luxury of you know, sitting at all, at all tables on both sides or all sides of the table. And uh, d depending on what type of scenario you might assume for the future, whether it's, you know, so whether this stays at a technological decoupling, whether a technological, de technological decoupling turns into a much more, uh, much more foundational systemic competition or conflict between China and the West, whatever that means, depending on what assumptions we make about how, say, Europe will, Will, will align with the US or how other areas of the how other important areas of the world like Africa, like the Middle East, like South America, like Southeast Asia, uh, will align with which block or will try to you know sit on both sides of the fence, depending on, on which assumptions we make. But I think boardrooms simply need to come to the realization that the era of being able to sit on all sides of all tables is probably over. And we need to be careful about does not turn into self-fulfilling uh, fulfilling prophecy by virtue of the actions of all, all stakeholders in the system. Having said that, if one were to sit in the boardroom right now, and if the board were to have a discussion with uh, the CEO or you know the, the, the C-suite, uh, if I were a director, I would probably ask, you know, what what, what is your contingency plan, Mr. Dies, to stick with the example that Stefan brought up with Volkswagen, uh, what, what what is your contingency plan in case of a, a continuing or a hardening decoupling, um, what is your strategy in terms of not, not just going back to the previous question about governance mechanism, who's in charge of what? What is your strategy in terms of product design? Uh, what is the strategy in terms of HR flows? What is your strategy in terms of financing flows? So at all of these levels, sort of corporate governance, product strategy, um, product design, um, 
human resource flows, investment flows, um, multinational enterprises might find themselves in a situation of having, of encountering for sustained periods of time or for shorter periods of time, certain limitations. And um, going back to your um, in opening remarks, Eric, I think in, in all of the at all of these levels, corporate strategy is based either implicitly or uh, or, or by virtue of assumption, is, is is based on on thinking that global flows in all of these areas will continue to be possible. Quite frankly, I I, I think there's a much higher likelihood that they will not be, and CEOs need to develop contingent plans for to address this. Probably a much more regionalized strategy in terms of product, in terms of governance, and in terms of all of the, the ingredients that go to it, including human resource flows and, and investment flows. I'll yeah. just, um, uh, Eric, echo, I think, Mark's point in that certainly at the end of the Trump administration, you were getting a lot of rhetoric that uh, U.S. tech companies in particular had to choose a side, right? They, they, there's, they could not continue doing what they were doing in uh, in China and, you know, still be considered American companies. And there was a lot of trying to uh, talk about patriotism and what the companies uh, should be doing uh, to be supporting the United, the United States. I do think that the Biden administration is less likely to take that type of rhetorical turn. The pressures will be the same, but I, I think what the administration hopes to do sometime, you know, by the end of their four years, not anywhere near at the beginning of it, is kind of reset the relationship and have a clear understanding of which technologies we're competing on and which technologies can we collaborate and cooperate on, right? And that will give, I think, more certainty to some companies. We'll, we'll have to basically say, all right, we cannot develop these technologies in China. We have to have, you know, either have to fork the product or have, you know, not be involved in that market at all. And other is that it's perfectly fine. We're going to continue to have these global supply chains. These technologies are not essential for national security or other types of competition. But I don't think the administration is going to get anywhere near that, you know, at least for another year, 18 months uh, as we move down the line. Now, we've been talking about this from the perspective of, of great powers, the US, China, and, and the, the EU. Uh, one of the questions from Abrar Ahmed in, in London points us to uh, the, the neighbors, the, the people in the, in the countries in the, in the region. Uh, and Abrar asks, how will decoupling impact relations with, with China's neighbors? Um, and Pakistan is, is raised as, as one, one example. What do you see happening within the, within the region in China? That they often, they don't want to have to choose between the US and China, and they, they can't make that, that choice. It's not as, as clear cut for them. What are the strategies that are being used in order to navigate the complexities of, of these relationships? Any thoughts on, on this? Um, yeah, yeah, let me, you know, uh, first actually uh, say something about, you know, the, the boardroom, actually, you know, the top managers, mm. uh, very briefly. On the one hand, I think, you know, the companies, they have to respond to the complexities, especially policy changes, uh, especially from the U.S. side. Uh, they have no choice. So I think you know, this is something. Actually, this is related to, you know, Eric, you just mentioned this is impact for the neighbors. My observation is many, many Chinese companies are now paying more attention to neighboring countries. So the export uh, to Southeast Asia countries uh, this year actually increased uh, uh, dramatically. Uh, secondly, I think you know we need to 
really think about how to avoid and make big mistakes. Uh, we should not actually try to use micro level solutions. For example, mm -hmm. solutions, you know, at the company level to deal with challenges from the, you know, the policy side. Put it differently uh, for, you know, country leaders in the US, in China, in EU, probably we need to think about the fundamental questions about, you know, division of labor, competition, free trade. Do we still believe in that? And if we believe, if we believe in that, I think we can find a solution. Otherwise, I think, you know, uh, that will create a lot of uh, inefficiency. So my understanding is we, we should try to, if we want to have a decoupling, we want to limit the scope and the scale. For example, you know, in really national security areas, in military uh, areas, you want to do that. Otherwise, I think that it will create too much, too much, you know, uh, challenges for the companies to deal with. That's a waste of human life. Uh, I'm sorry to use this kind of word. No. Thank you. So it's about it's about defining boundaries in terms of what's national security, what's not, and trying to have different 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 approaches in in in, right. in each of these. Right. Um, Right. Rebecca, what do you think from the from the EU perspective that it's also it doesn't have the challenges of being one of China's neighbors, but it does have the challenge of navigating between the US and Chinese perspectives and the US, you know, increasingly saying you have to have to choose a side here. How can it manage this decoupling relationship? What do you think the paths forward are going to going to be? Well, first of all, just to go back to quickly to the question that was asked before, we uh, talked to a lot of companies recently uh, for a survey we did with the European Chamber of Commerce in China. Big takeaway is that a lot of companies are just not thinking enough about what the implications of the coupling might be. So there just need to be plans uh, put in place that are not in place yet about how to how to navigate uh, the coupling because a lot of companies we talk to have no intention to leave the Chinese market. Uh, so they still need to come up with contingency plans. So that was one big takeaway from, from our report. We have about five minutes left and there's a couple of big questions in the chat, which um, I'm not sure that we can handle in five minutes, but I'd like your, your reactions to. Uh, one is, is it inevitable that China is going to be the next superpower? And another one is, conflict inevitable. And these are linked. A dominant theory in international relations is that there's never been a transition from one superpower to the next without conflict, with the exception of the shift from the UK to the, to the US, that there's all kinds of dynamics that are created and inevitably it leads to, leads to conflict. Can we manage this? If yeah. I can, I think you know, the answer is uh, yes, no. <laughs> uh, China is already a superpower. This mm. is a, the, a fact uh, measured by many, you know, different metrics. For example, you know, the size uh, of the economy. So this is why I think, you know, we are attracting a lot of, uh, uh, you know, foreign investment. Mm. And so many companies coming to China and including actually U.S. companies and uh, EU companies. And the second, is that inevitable? Uh, to have crisis, I, I think you know the the answer is uh, we should have the you know the the wisdom, the willingness 
to avoid all this, uh, I have a very simple, you know, kind of uh, uh, suggestion. U.S. leaders and Chinese leaders, we need to think about more important things. Uh, I really believe in the middle way of thinking. Look at the Chinese history uh, philosophy. So two superpowers or more superpowers. Why not? You know, they could not coexist. Uh, thank you, uh, Stefan, and then Adam. Any any closing thoughts on 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 this? Well, I do think that um, it, if there will be a conflict, depends a lot of uh, on the people who are actually running the show. And one of the key questions will be how the Chinese leadership will look like in the future. In the past, we used to have this rule that after 10 years, the heads of the party would step down and make way for the next leadership. But um, under Xi Jinping, that is not sure anymore. So we will see next year whether he's going to step down or not. And this will have a huge impact on the bilateral relations with the US and, and China. Uh, I'm quite skeptical that Europe will play a huge role in this uh, in this question, as Europe is still too divided to come up like with a clear-cut answer. And the paramount scheme has always been on not being forced to pick sides. So I think that um, uh, Brussels is not going to have a big say whether there will be a conflict or not. It's rather being decided in Beijing and Washington. Adam, your your brief. Uh... Yes, so I, I don't. I don't think it is inevitable. Uh, you know, clearly politics matter for all the reasons that everyone has said. But it is going to take a lot of wise uh, statesmanship and political decision making. And I don't see a huge amount of reason for confidence on domestic policy making on either side of the Pacific. You know, certainly better than before the election. But you know, I, I think there are lots of reasons why to think that both sides could be caught out that there are unintended effects and spillovers that they can't control. My thanks to Dr. Adam Siegel, Professor Shudan Gao, Rebecca Arkasati, Stefan Scheuer, and Dr. Mark Zeppin, as well as Dr. Eric Toon, who moderated today's session. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Side Business School. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and please do take a moment to rate and review us. In the next episode, we'll be asking digital platforms, saints or sinners? You can find more information about Leadership in Extraordinary Times at OxfordAnswers.org. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>